100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge-to-edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no-fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the top of the line heavy duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house to send us a message and inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by Chris Wiest. In the last few years, Chris has left his home in Pennsylvania to try his hand at public lands in Maryland and Ohio. Last season, Chris brought home four bucks between three states using different tactics for each. So we break down these tactics based on his stories from a memorable season. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday Story of the Week, we have a story coming out of Pennsylvania from Jordan Kennedy. On November 3rd, I went into a new area that I've never been to before. It was adjacent to a place I've hunted for a while and got permission to hunt this private piece of mountain ground. I picked the right day to go. They have some fields right behind the camp, and then it's just a mountainside that is pretty much all inclined the whole way to the top. I found a spot that was as flattened out as I could find, and it was right off an old four-wheeler trail. It's very thick with small saplings, so my windows were, were small, but a doe brought him in less than 10 yards from me. I still can't believe it. So this is, as I say this with every story that comes in, uh, the Mountain Buck Monday stories, but head over to East Meets West Hunt on Instagram or East Meets West Outdoors on Facebook to check out the pictures of the bucks that I that I talk about here. And this one is just a truly once-in-a-lifetime buck from Pennsylvania and really anywhere. Super unique rack, just giant deer. Uh, pretty cool. Found that flat spot on the side of a steep hill and... Um, the doe uh, brought the buck right to him. So congratulations again, Jordan. And uh, yeah, if anybody else has any stories, any mountain buck stories they want to send in, send me an email, bowdeastmeetswesthunt.com. And uh, yeah, send in your story, just a short paragraph or so, and, and some photos. I'd love to be able to share it on future episodes. And uh, in other news, I just wanted to say that uh, I will be again at uh, NWTF, the NWTF show in Nashville this weekend. So if you listen to this live February 2023, I will be down there uh, with Spartan Forge. So Bill and I will be at the booth. We'll be at a combined booth with the Seek One boys. So all of us will be there. We can walk through some of the, the mapping. If you have any questions, any any sort of things with the app, Feel free to stop by and ask, and we can go through and just and uh, geek out on a little bit. But I'm excited. I've never been to that show before, so it should be a good time. Other than that, uh, I hope that everyone has a, a great rest of your week and is taking advantage of some of this nice weather that we've been having in the Northeast and getting out in the woods. All right, Chris Weiss, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good going, man. Yeah, nothing much. Just uh, just a rainy morning here in in Pennsylvania. I can't complain though because it's February and there's not much for snow on the ground, which is pretty rare. How about where you're at? Yeah, it's been about the same. It hasn't been a very harsh winter here either. So take advantage of the uh, nice weather while you can, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so where where are you located at? You're in Pennsylvania as well, correct? Yeah. Uh, it's like West Central, so like around Breezewood, Bedford, Lower Altoona, that area. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, there's uh, Pennsylvania is a uh, you know it's a 
relatively big state, but it's small at the same time. As far as uh, you know, it's it's everybody everybody kind of knows each other's areas and where they're at. And and uh, I don't know, I love Pennsylvania. It's pretty cool how it can be so spread apart. You know, or as far as like so diverse as far as the landscape and everything else. I mean, you can go anywhere from having super flat swamps and some farm country to the mountains and everything in between. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely diverse. Have you uh, have you grown up here your whole life? Yeah. Yep. Never moved very far from home. I uh, my home place is actually like a hit with a baseball from my house right now. So I didn't go very far. <laughs> Hey, I, that's funny you say that because I'm I'm the same way. So I I literally yep. I'd, I'd have to hit the baseball pretty hard, but I could I could hit my parents' house. Uh, uh yeah, across the road a little ways. So it's kind of funny. <laughs> um, I moved away for a while and then um, then came back and ended up yeah real close to home. So <laughs> it's it's funny how that works out. But so let's t- talk to me a little bit about the your background as far as in hunting and just. Anything else that, that you think would be pertinent to share with everybody? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I probably got started just like a lot of guys do hunting with my dad. He got me into it really early. I probably picked up my first bow when I was like 11 or something like that. Shot my first deer when I was like 12. And then uh, just progressed from there. Um, can't say it's anything too crazy. Just growing up and getting into it and seeing my dad take his deer and uh him taking me and showing me those and and it just kind of rolls from there you know what i mean yeah just like being in timber when do you think like it was like you really felt like you were just all in on it because i mean from talking to you and and seeing some things that you i mean like last year you were traveling all over the place and didn't hunting a lot like when when do you think like it you got that passion or like really want to get into it i always loved it but I think once you like arrow your first like good buck, I think that really like sets it off right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I want to say I was like 16 or 17, probably 17. I think okay. I was 17 when I shot my first, like, I don't know, back then, like 110 inch buck was like a monster. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, and, and heck, that's still a great buck for Pennsylvania. It's like, but yeah, I remember, I remember when, I remember when I was a kid and kind of growing up, it was right like when the antler restrictions were starting to be put in place and they were starting to get some, you know, nicer bucks coming through in Pennsylvania and everything. But, you know, up until then it was not, yeah, 110 inch deer would win, uh, you know, win buck contests in a lot of places. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, for the longest time, like that was like my goal. I was like, if I could kill like a 110, 115 every year, I was like, I feel like I'm a pretty good hunter. But- <laughs> yeah now it seems like that's all I shot for, you know, growing up until now. So, yeah. And, and the thing is, it's, it's funny in Pennsylvania and some of the other states, depending on where you're at, I mean, sometimes there's deer that don't, that won't get over that antler size, even at an older age class. Like, you know, there's, I I can, I can look at my trail cameras and know there's deer that are six, seven years old that, that won't ever be any, that will never beat that 120 inch mark. It's just, uh, it's, it's an interesting, it's not, you know, like some of the, the Midwest States where no matter what, you know, or I shouldn't say no matter what, that's not always the case, but the majority of the deer kind of go in some, you know, pretty good increments as they go up through age. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. There's definitely look at that hundred and 
anymore around here. Like that 120 mark is like very common. And then yep. like across like a broad spectrum of age too. Like we have like some big two and a half year old deer, but then you'll get like a five year old deer that's the same size. Yeah. Yeah. Really wide and short points is very common in Pennsylvania. I feel. It's, I it's the it Pennsylvania, yeah, it's the Pennsylvania eight pointer, man. That's exactly where you like, get those giant six points. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's super common. Yeah, I always call it that. It's like I'll have it on my camera. It seems like every every spot I go to, you'll have at least one of the Pennsylvania eight pointers. You know, that's just what they are, and that's what they're gonna be. And it's never yep. nothing, never anything special, but it's just they're they're cool nonetheless, and not any easier to shoot by by any means. You know. Um, but anyway, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, last year you had a stellar year and, but I'm interested to hear first of all, like you traveled, what was Maryland, Ohio, and Pennsylvania kind of keeping in the triangle there. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And is that something you've done for years? Was it, was this past season the first time that you kind of went multiple States? Give me a little bit of a background. Yeah, so I did Maryland, uh, I think, two other years, but they were probably like two years ago. And the first year, I didn't kill anything, and the second year, I just shot a doe. And it was just really big mountain ground, hard to hunt, didn't see a lot of deer, and it's not that much different than PA. Um, but Ohio, this year coming will be my third year in Ohio. So the season prior, I had went down there and shot just the – uh, 120 inch nine point for my first year and then the then last season this past season i shot just a uh just a mature uh four-year-old buck but um as far as i mean pennsylvania's every year yeah. and then i went to north carolina a couple times but that's that's not public ground that's uh like me and my dad and a bunch of our buddies, it's just a small group of us would all go down for like a cheap outfitter hunt. It was nice. basically just to get together and have a good time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I got uh, a couple of North Carolina bucks. Oh, that's pretty cool. And what, what made you decide you wanted to kind of branch out a little bit, you know, outside of the home state of Pennsylvania that you've, you know, hunted for forever? Probably the orange army. <laughs> <laughs> a little more opportunity. You know what I mean? And then, yeah. uh, I think, the, I think the biggest thing with Maryland, to be honest, is just that it opens so early and then I can really like critique my setup. Like, you know, if you'd walk into Pennsylvania day one and you're all over the place, gears laying all over the ground, you don't know where stuff's going to. So it kind of gives me a chance to get in the woods early and get my stuff together. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. Like the, the first set, no matter what of the season, no matter where it's, it's at, a jungle it's always... mess. Yeah, kind of a mess. You know, you think you got your stuff prepped, you think you have everything ready, but it takes a little bit to get your flow down on getting in and setting up and all that stuff. So it's it's definitely, I, I definitely go through that myself. And I've tried to reduce that curve because I feel like in the past, especially like when I first got out of college, it was like, I didn't prep things until right before right before opening night half the time I was throwing stuff together now I try to you know have it but you still you kind of forget like okay what pocket did I put this in or like you're getting up in the tree and you're hanging and like oh I forgot this I forgot you know there's like little things that you start to 
that you you forget uh usually at the beginning of the hunts and then and then by the end you're you feel dialed like you can get in and slip right in quietly you're not banging off you know not banging metal together and <laughs> i don't know it's a i, I think oh, that's, yeah, you a, get that's like, a good point you get like three weeks in and you got your stuff dialed but those first couple sits are rough <laughs> <laughs> yeah most definitely well cool so let, let's let's just walk through um your last season and, and, and kind of talk about it a little bit. So when you, you know, you said you started out in Maryland, but did you just like, uh, and you'd hunted it, you know, kind of years prior, were you going off that years prior, uh, knowledge or did you start like going, do you do scouting trips in the spring or how does that look for you? How does your scouting look? Yeah. So last year <clears throat> I kind of just like made a decision. Like I kind of had a chip on my shoulder with that area because I hadn't killed a buck there yet, but I knew there was bucks there. I had them on camera. So uh, I kind of started like late July, early August, running some cameras and uh, scouting this clear cut. And uh, I had plenty of good bucks hitting this clear cut all August. And even into September, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think uh, Maryland season opens like literally the first week of September. I think it's like September, like uh, just to say fifth, like right around there somewhere. And uh, what do you know, it just like all the time. I had these bucks coming in, five, six of them in a group every single day, on the dot, same time. And then like three days before the season, boom, they quit showing up. And it's like <laughs> a jungle mess, trying to figure these deer out all over again. So uh, this clear cut, I'm going to guess probably four to five years old. So it's not like um, six foot high, but you probably have like in your open areas, you have like four foot uh, just jump grass and then green briar patches. And then there's uh, probably, I don't know, 20, 30 trees in the middle, just scattered. So basically what I did was I, I was trying to find these bucks again and figure out what they were doing. So I automatically just started looking for feed trees, looking for white oaks that were dropping. And I'd walked end to end on this clear cut probably three times, four times. And there was just this one specific huge white oak tree in the middle. And I could glass up and see the acorns on it, but it wasn't dropping yet. And I think it took the third time. The third time that I went in there and scouted that tree, it started to drop. And then as soon as it started to drop, the sign underneath the tree was just unreal. There was just sign everywhere. So I threw a camera up, and it wasn't like three, four days later. I had almost every buck I had in the summer coming and hitting that tree. And it wasn't always in the daylight, but I knew they were coming there. And, uh, like the closest tree to hunt that feed tree was like uh, 35 yards and it's it's the what they're out in the wide open so there's no easy way to like sit in this tree and i'm like six foot five so i'm like trying to hide in this small tree yeah they have to know this clear cut and uh <laughs> i forget how many hunts it took me well i want to say I, like the Sorry, sorry to sorry to interrupt. I just had a question based off of that. So, this this uh, white oak was in the middle of the clear cut, like it wasn't mm -hmm. out of. It was in the in the middle there. So, like it was like kind of like a select cut where they left some of those seed trees up to to be able yep. to yeah drop down. Okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is that's a really difficult thing to get close to the and access in general of like not knowing where those or maybe you did know but not knowing like where the deer are bedded at within the cut if they are bedding inside of it and figuring out how to access to it and you get in some of those those places and there's just like 
you know, every so often there's a big tree that you can get into, which it sounds like this mm-hmm. situation. And yeah, you kind of stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> and I'm yeah, and, you, and you're a big dude. Like a little bit you're, too. You're six five. You're built. Like you. I don't know how much you weigh, but you're a big dude. Like you're you're a big guy. So it probably was it was difficult to hide up there. Yeah, I didn't feel like I was hidden at all. That's for sure. <laughs> But I might even got ahead of myself because I, I did scout and I uh, found some beds. So this the creek cuts on the very top of the mountain, and it's not like hilly or ridgy like Ohio is. It's just like really big mountain ground, and this clear cuts on the very very top. So the the deer weren't even bedding on the top in the clear cut. They were bedding on the side, like maybe like two benches down, and it was on an east side. But the deer were actually coming up in the evening to feed on top rather than, you know, the opposite coming from the top down to the bottom, which made it kind of hard on top because you got that west wind coming over the top and they're on the east side. So as soon as they pop up over the side, then, you know, it's like, bam, they got you. Yep. And I just got fortunate enough that the evening I killed my buck, he come win the tail from the west side into that tree. I think I hunted it uh, three times and I had seen probably – I don't know, 10, 12 deer, just does and small bucks. Uh, but we had a front moving in, uh, I think, like, the next morning. And I think it just got that buck up in time because I shot him, like, the last 10 minutes of, day- of uh, daylight. he come into that tree. Okay, gotcha. And so he didn't come from the east side. Like, he came from mm-hmm. the opposite direction. Do you think he might have been laying in the cut, or do you think he was just, like, laying on the other side of the ridge? That at that time, I think he was better than the cut on the west side, which definitely threw me off. I didn't expect it because you'd have thought he'd have been on the east side with the window his back and have visual downhill, but he actually come from the opposite side. But on the opposite side, there's also like a township road, so maybe he just just using that as visual bedding. You know, he had the wind yeah. coming to his face, but he could see down too. But he just got up and turned around and come wind to tail to the tree. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. And when, in that situation you're talking about there, that's difficult, but I find, I find that often where they're coming up to feed, like, you know, if there's an area that's, you know, big woods or mountainous that has ag in the bottoms, uh, like usually that seems like then they're coming down, but I think more times than not, I find either the cuts that are on the top or even like the oak, the, you know, the big oak stands are on the top of the ridges and they're kind of coming up. They're waiting for those thermals to switch, you know, at the last 45 yep. minutes of light and then coming up over and, and coming to feed. It is difficult. It's like, you're trying to, you're trying to cut that wind, like just like just off, you know what I mean? Like, and, and it doesn't always stay consistent. So that's where it's difficult because it's, you know, you'll get gusts from different directions, even though it's calling for a West wind, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's a tough game to play and it's definitely risky but i i like i like your standpoint of kind of just i mean that's what that's what you have to work with and that's probably your best odds of, of killing them and spooking them really at the same time yeah and just like a side note when uh with my setup on that tree there was like almost a small i want to say divot or maybe it's not a ditch just like a small just a dip in the mountain right below that tree and i kind of i knew they were coming up in that low point from the east side and i just had that just off wind like it was between me and the tree 
So I knew even though the wind was blowing towards the bedding, I was just on that off wind. But I mean, all the does come out of that dip. But like I said, for whatever reason, he was just, he must've been using that visual bedding on the uh, West side. Mm. So I've actually found a lot more success on the big mountain, you know, on the off winds, not like a, you know, having a true wind to their face or their tail. It's just like, I feel like it's an off wind. When you have the wind and he has the wind both, then you're like in the best situation. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, the last, last two bucks that I've killed in Pennsylvania were that way. Like he had the wind in his favor and I was just off enough that like it, it was, it was like, I don't know, you know, if they could have, if he could have came 15 minutes earlier or 20 minutes later, it might've been wrong, you know, cause it's, you know, it starts going back and forth a little bit, kind of like a sail and, uh, and, and it's risky, but that's, that's a, a great tactic for being able to, to get on them there. And so how was your access? Like, how did you get into that spot? Uh, that actually, it wasn't that hard. If I'm being honest, it was actually a really, really easy walk, but it's super low pressure area in archery season. So it just had not been bothered at all. I just kind of got lucky in that aspect. You know what I mean? It's really low pressure early bow season. Uh, in that particular area, I think it's really high pressure gun area. Mm, okay. And like, did you walk at that point? Did you come in with the wind in your face or how, how are you accessing that your stand? So there's just like an old logging like a two track and I was just walking that two track in. And so the, the wind was blowing towards the bedding, but I wasn't to the bedding yet. So my wind was blowing in their direction, but behind them, you know I mean, I wasn't to them yet for them to catch my wind. Yep. So, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Um, and then when that, when that buck was coming in and did he ever look up at you, you know, you know, you said you were kind of sticking out, like, did he ever look up or was it, he was pretty comfortable where he was at and probably without a lot of pressure. Uh, he was pretty comfortable, especially like, uh, it was like that last 10 minutes and there was a couple other deer there. I'm sure having those other deer there made him feel better about the situation. Now I think if it was him by himself and he was coming in, he'd have probably been a little more on edge. I, I'd see that a lot. You know, if you have a group of deer, a more mature deer is, I'll say, more comfortable, you know what I mean, coming yep. coming in when there's more deer already there. Yeah, and they, they use they use those does and the young bucks as, like, test dummies. You know, like, they throw them decoys. out there. Yeah, decoy, <laughs> make sure there's no, uh, no danger ahead, and there's definitely more likely for them to, you know, come in after that. I, <laughs> I totally agree with that. And, and also, I feel like it probably, when you're in those types of cuts, even though you do stick out like that, when you have the brush that's, like, at their head level, they seem to feel more comfortable than... And if, then if it was just like an open field, you know, that they were coming through and you were in an open tree or just like open hardwoods, you know, say you're on like an oak stand and you're, there's no branches going up and you're just in this oak tree sticking out like crazy. But I feel like in those cuts, when they have that brush and the briars and everything that are kind of, you know, making them feel secure in there, they're, they're not as apt to look up unless someone's you know, did something and spooked him before in there. But other than that, it, it, I feel like you can get away with a little bit more. Yeah. And that deer, uh, I think the night before I, I sat in my lone wolf and I feel like it really stuck out, like the hang on in the tree stuck out really bad. So the next night when I went in, I was in my saddle and I just sat on the backside of the tree. So I think that helped a lot too. Yeah, that, that, that definitely, that definitely would, would help out quite a bit. Um, 
And uh, so, how how far was the shot? Then you said it was thirty five yards to the to the yeah. feed tree. Is that right? Right yep, where he was at. Yep. Have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, and others available at all times? Well, you can with Cyber Scout from Spartan Forge. Cyber Scout is like the Chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. Cyber Scout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%. And if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S. And I've been using the Acura series. But they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade Short Barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com slash CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. Nice. Yep, 35. Oh, that's pretty cool. Kind of had to shoot when I could because I don't want to run out of light either. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so, like on that hunt, you said that was that was early September at that point, or what time was that? Yeah, so that tree started dropping between the 18th and the 23rd. So it was probably right around the 23rd when I shot him. Okay, yep. nice. Yeah, no, I think I had like. I think I had like two and a half solid weeks of hunting before I killed him. Okay. Gotcha. And how were you, how were you doing that? Were you like going in like a couple days at a time? Like, or, you know, I, I know we were talking before we got on here, you work night shift. So were you mm-hmm. like going like after work and going out and, and hunting or, or how, how did that kind of work for you? Uh, during the season, I was actually on a, on a different shift. I was on like four to 12 shifts. So I would go and hunt the mornings mainly, and then just hunt the evenings on the weekend. But, uh, and it's, it's not that far from my house. I might have like a 35 minute drive to Maryland from here. Okay. So I just, I just kind of made it down whenever I could, whenever I had extra time. Yeah. I would go down every chance I could and just get some boots on the ground and do my scouting. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty awesome that yeah, you're able to find that, that feed tree and, and was, what was the acorn crop like in general? Was it like, that was the tree? Like there wasn't that many that were dropping or was there quite, quite a few and it just so happened they were going there. Yeah. So I, I basically checked every white oak tree that was in that clear cut. Cause I mean, they stick out like a sore thumb. I could glass one end the other and just see them all and then go walk to them and check them and some of the bigger ones were dropping, but it wasn't crazy. You know, they might be dropping a handful here, a handful there. But this one giant one was just dumping them. I mean, when you were sitting in the stand, they were hitting the ground the entire time that you were sitting in the tree, just raining them. So, I mean, obviously, that's I think that's what made it such a hot spot. 
Man, that's that's such a that's such an important thing to note too of like checking those trees and like paying attention to it. And you know, it took you some time, you know, before you know when you're scouting down there and checking those trees to be able to figure out which one dropping the most. And you know, I hear uh, you know, one of the actually one of the most things that I get asked as far as questions is like, what do you do when there's multiple oak trees that are dropping and like figuring out and I think you kind of answered that a lot is like trying to fix they don't all drop at the same time if they do that that becomes a problem but like as far as if you can find where ones are really like hot at that moment and heck a week later that might not have been the case and it might have been a completely different tree that was was doing that yep no I agree and then once you find those trees specifically like that within a couple days of when they're dropping you take that note you know write the date when they started dropping what tree it is, you have that like on your own X or the notes or whatever, you save a lot of boot time and a lot of pressure that you're putting on that ground yourself for the next season. You know, you could hold off until within that three or four day period and then go check it then the next year without walking all over the place and putting unnecessary pressure on it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's such a good point. And, and uh, do you find that pretty typically as far as like certain trees drop around the same time every year? Uh, I don't quite have it done with science like that just yet. Yeah. That's, that's something that I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking into taking more yeah. notes on stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, I think that's awesome. I think that's something that, that I have not done as far as like wrote down the notes as far as when the trees are drop or when the acorns are dropping and, and trying to correlate kind of a plan, you know, like I've done that with mm-hmm. those, like when they, you find doe groups that tend to come into heat at certain times and they seem to, to, correlate there but i think that's i think that's really valuable at least it'd be a good thing to test and and pay attention to and like you said write down the notes because anytime you can write down notes and look back on historical data i feel like even though that it might not always line up perfectly it gets you in a lot better starting place than you were the previous year absolutely i don't even i don't know how it is up your way i was just talking to a couple of my buddies about this the other day i would almost rather Pennsylvania season open two weeks earlier than have like that two weeks on the back end towards Thanksgiving. I, I'll tell you what, man, I think, I mean, I'd kill, I'd kill a good one every single year if that was the case. Like, they're so much more patternable. And if you have a good acorn year, like early season setups, I find a lot of really good early season setups around this area. Yeah. And, and, and honestly too, like same, same, I don't want to say the same because those last two weeks are like also my favorite. So like, I'd rather like yeah. move two to two weeks in October <laughs> and still keep the back end and add it on the front. But September is such a patternable time. Like even in the Absolutely. big woods, you can find some actual patterns. And it feels like once October hits, it's, it's a lot more scattered as far as trying to figure that out. Like even, even like throwing oak trees out of the mix, Cherry trees are big in some of the areas that I hunt. And when black cherries are dropping, you find trees that are dropping black cherries, man, they are scooping them up, but they're typically gone by the first week of the season. And, uh, it's, and so like, I'll have so many pictures in like really like the September 13th at like the 25th, like in that period, I have, I have a lot of good daylight 
buck movement. Like once they move from kind of wherever they're hanging out in the summer and their velvet sheds, you find like that next transition zone. And I feel like they're just way more comfortable at that time. And who knows, yeah. maybe once that you add pressure to the mix of everyone do, you know, hunting at that time of year, maybe that changes. I don't know, but I'd, I wouldn't mind trying it. I think it definitely like depends on the area you're in too. Like, I feel like everybody has the best success in, in like different areas, different types of terrain. But my thing here is like, we got that stinking muzzleloader bear season now, which is good for the bear hunters. You know, I like to see some more bears taken because I, I think they are do become an issue, but you got guys out here, they're putting on 20 man drives in the middle of October for bears and muzzleloaders. And you can't tell me that doesn't hurt the, the, the pressure on the deer. Yeah. That makes it 10 times harder before rifle season gets here and all that stuff. Yeah, I know. I, I like the idea of extending the bear season and I do like the idea that bear hunters get more of an opportunity rather than the three day rifle season that they had, you know, before and now archery is extended too, but it, from a deer hunter standpoint, it sucks. Like it definitely yeah, sucks definitely. because it throws everything off when, yeah, you have those big groups of people coming through. And again, that's their right to do it. And I completely understand it, but it's just, it sucks from a, from a deer hunter standpoint, because it, it definitely puts them on alert and it's, it's almost, it almost seems like it's made that October 20th to 25th where I've used to do pretty well with, with daylight activity of bucks. It kind of, it slowed it down the last few years in my opinion. And it takes almost like, you know, once you give them about a week to settle down again and their testosterone levels are jumping up and they start being a little more careless towards the rut where then, then it becomes a little bit normalized again. But yeah, I've, I've definitely yeah. seen yep. that as a trend for sure. And so after Maryland, what, what was your, did you go back to PA or what? Cause I remember seeing like a post that you had that, you know, you had, shot like three bucks by sometime in the beginning of October. So kind of walk me through where your next step went there. Yeah. So from Maryland, then I harvested my buck in PA for the first week of season in PA. It was October 7th. Okay. And I know we talked about, uh, like the different, basically like the different types of tactics. And I kind of felt like I used four different ones for the four bucks I killed. So uh, definitely like considered the Maryland buck like a, a feed tree, like using the, the acorn crop. It, it, it plays in a little bit to my PA buck as well, but I was really hunting more like him coming off his bed uh, and just trail cam data. So this is just an area that I've, I've been in for probably five years. And it's just a small chunk of public and uh, this like a dairy farm on the low end of it. So you have ag, there's a lot of alfalfa stuff down there. And, uh, we, me and one of my other buddies was in this area running cameras. And we, I mean, we got this thing on camera in velvet. And at that point, that was the biggest buck that I had on camera in Pennsylvania. So I was like, well, looks like that's the one this year. And, uh, we just, as soon as we got the first picture in August, we spent that whole day. We we're like, we're going to do it. So let's just jump into this thing. We're going to put boots on the ground for like three hours, do what we have to do to find where he's bedding at, put the cameras up, and then we're going to get out and maybe check it one more time before we come to hunt. And uh, that's what we did. And we, we found where the deer were bedding at and what we thought was his bed and how he was exiting and coming back in. 
And I snuck back in probably about six days before the PA opener and checked the cameras and he was still in there. And it seemed like he had shifted a little bit, but at that point I didn't want to go search for his bed a second time because I don't want to put that unnecessary pressure on him. And, but I still had enough data where he was, I made a mock scrape in there and he was coming past that and kind of checking that out. And, uh, I was actually in Ohio for the Pennsylvania opener and my buddy went in to hunt him and opening morning missed him. Oh, at, no like, 40, way. At like 40 yards. Yeah. And, uh, I had made this joke. He, he texted me. He was all worked up. He's like, Oh man, I just missed him. I just messed it up. And I texted him back. I was like, well, man, it looks like I'll have to go kill him for you now. But it was just <laughs> a big joke. And, uh, I'm trying to think. So I went in. I, I, before, before you go to there, I want to ask a little bit about like your strategy on finding his bed. Like what, what did that, mm-hmm. what, what did the area look like where the deer were bedding in his specific bed? So just give kind of the listeners a, a visual, paint a picture of kind of what it looked like. Okay. Yeah. So this area is a little bit different. Um, it's not, there's a steep hillside, but they weren't going the whole way up. They were bedded like on the low half of it. And what makes this area different is there's a lot of just uh, vegetation. And once that vegetation gets a frost and it dies, then the deer just completely like move out of there. As soon as the vegetation dies, then they just, they just completely move out. And I know that just from like years past. Um, but there's like some small ditches and it kind of rolls. And then there's uh, like low spots where the ditches are is where all like the thick vegetation is. And he was actually... Um, the bed that he come from when I did kill him, he was a bed in one of those ditches, just as high as the ditch would go. And he was like right in a little pocket. And these ditches are only, uh, 15 yards wide, maybe, but they're like kind of long. So yep. like up and up and down the mountain, he's in this like thin strip of vegetation is what he's bedding in. And, uh, so that's, that's why we was in there hunting so early, so hard, so early. Cause I knew, you know, after that, like second week, if we'd have got a cold snap, then that stuff would have died and he'd have probably moved his or shifted his bedding again. Okay. So it was just like, was it like a lot of viney type stuff or bushes or something that was kind of, when you said thick vegetation, that was like through those ditches. What, what do you know what it was? It's like a mix of green briar and uh, grass. Like there's, I don't even know what type of grass it would be. It's just like about four foot tall and it's kind of swampy in there. So it's just, okay. No, that, that, that makes sense. I, I, I'm always curious on like when, um, especially the early season, it can be difficult when there is a lot of vegetation to narrow down bedding. And it almost seems like, you know, that deer from, from me listening to your story, like if there was, if his like primary food was like down in that, you know, dairy farm or going down there. Uh, and then, you know, instead of using like specific terrain type vegetation, he was using, he was using the vegetation standpoint of like cover and security more than anything. And then, but still being relatively close to, to the food that it could get down to. Does that sound about right? Yeah. So what he was doing was when he come out of his bed, there was some white oaks in there dropping. It was nothing crazy, but I mean, he would, he'd be hitting that first food source would be acorns. He would stage up there, eat acorns. And then, once it got dark, then he would move down to the big ag fields because the big ag fields are kind of close to a hard road. So I know he's not going down there until it's pitch black. Mm, 
Yeah, that 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 makes total sense. So when you when you went in after your buddy missed him, explain like kind of how you went in and uh, and and how you hunted him based off that bed. Yeah, so I put three sits on him before we actually killed him. The next set, I just went based off of where my buddy sat and missed him. I went in in the morning. He missed him on the morning set, so I went back in on the morning when I got back from Ohio about four days later and sat maybe like 25 yards further over than he did because he said he'd come up like 40 yards from him, so I just closed the gap a little bit. I, I just seen one small buck that morning, and I was just trying to cut that. I was using a terrain, one of the ditches, and there's a small point that runs down. I was kind of just trying to look at the map and from what he explain to me and just cut the gap from where he was coming from the feed back to his bed. And I knew the general direction of where he was bedded at. And then the next two sits, I actually seen the buck and those were evening sits. So I took, actually took my dog, my trad bow with me on the third sit. And I just got right in tight over top of that scrape, my mock scrape that I made. And I had plenty of pictures of him going past that camera, but it wasn't every single day. So I kind of had a feeling he was off this side just a little bit. And apparently he was using an exit trail that I had no idea he was using. Because that evening, uh, I was watching the direction I thought he was going to come from. And he actually came about 60 yards slower than I expected. And so there's this little six point leading. And the six point, I mean, he come right under my platform and the, he was, the 10 point was right behind him, like maybe 30 yards in between them. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to kill this deer with my, this uh, deer with my trad bow right now. And yeah. I'm ready. And like, he's going to come right underneath the tree. What, you know, for whatever reason, this six point hits my boot trail and just freaks out. Just, I mean, just completely hits the floor and turns and run. And then obviously the, the big one wasn't going to commit at that point. Yeah. So they just they just kind of hung out. Like they didn't know what happened. They didn't smell me. Nothing like that. They were just weirded out. And then he went back in where he come from. And I basically just waited until the next uh, good wind. And then me and my buddy both went in. And I was like, for whatever reason, this deer is super killable because he's he's still staying true to his roots. And I was like, you sit here. And I was like, I'm gonna go down to where he come out last time. It's gonna be fifty fifty. So one of us is gonna kill him. And then that evening, about 15 minutes or so before dark, I had a four-point come in. And, I, dude, I'm telling you, I was in a tree like this big. Like, that's just all that was there. It was like a little pin oak. So, like an eight-inch diameter tree. Just Absolutely. Like a... <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was, I was only probably eight, nine foot off the ground. Because that's just as high as I could get without starting to break, like, dead branches off. And I knew I was close to him, so I don't want to make any more noise. So I'm just like, this four points walking by like 10 yards and I got my bow in front of my face, just like following him. Yeah. Pray to God, he doesn't pick me out. I don't know how I got away with it, but he went cruising by and it wasn't even two minutes. And then I seen him coming and he got behind a little bit bigger tree. I drew and he come right to 12 yards and I just shot him right there, like eight, nine foot off the ground. So he was pretty close. Oh man. Did you shoot him with your trad bow? No, I'm kicking myself for it. I had, <laughs> I had my trad bow, and I was super stoked about it because I almost killed him. 
but because I'm like in like a slow transition of going completely trad, mm-hmm. but I I still catch myself in those moments where I'm like, ah, I should just take my compound, yeah, and just be done with it. And so I took my compound, and he comes in twelve yards, and I kill him. I'm like, oh man, yeah, <laughs> oh, that's that's really funny. <laughs> Um, so how did he, how did he come in? So like you, were you like kind of below him on the mountain as far as like where you think he was betting at and he was like kind of coming down at that point? Well, I knew he was kind of like just above us, but out from us, like he was going to come down and then kind of like J hook to his right to us is how he was using the terrain. And I almost like, I just knew spitball. He was about 60 yards below me. That was a Monday night when I seen him with my travel and then Friday, it was the next day we had the good the wind to hunt him. Well, I'm shooting a new bow this year and I am pumped. After playing around with the buddies Hoyt RX8, the smile on my face made the decision for me. The first thing I noticed with the new Hoyts were their extremely smooth draw cycles and the ability to adjust the back wall to make it rock solid like I prefer. I outfitted my own RX-8 with the inline accessories that made installation extremely easy and balanced out the bow. My favorite accessory so far is a simple one. It's the Go Sticks 2.0 adjustable legs to make your bow like a tripod, but it doesn't interfere with any part of the bow or the limbs or anything like that. In addition, the integrated kickstand within the HBX exact cams protect your string from excess wear when you put your cam into the dirt. Ground hunting or spot and stock just got easier. If you want to experience what I'm talking about, head to your nearest Hoyt dealer and take a test drive yourself. You can learn more at Hoyt.com. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at themobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. And it kind of like, so you got your ditch, the vegetation, and then it follows a point and it comes and joins the hollow. There's just, it comes to a point. And I didn't, I knew I didn't want to be below the point. So I picked out the best tree, probably like 25 yards from the end of it. And I kind of figured he would cross like the very end of it. And he he walked right to the tree. Like he was gonna probably brush my tree as he walked past. So I think I just ended up picking that tree perfect is all that was. Oh man, that's awesome. That and I'm sure it helped like you know, learning that area over the last five years of like understanding how they're betting versus vegetation and like I harp on that all the time is like I, I I look at every area as like a three-year plan. Like it's going to take me at least three years to really feel good about any spot that I go into. It's, I love walking new areas. Like that's one of my favorite things because it's just like the unknown of just like, you don't know what you're going to find. But if I want to be successful, it's like really finding spots that you put time in 
years and you start really micro learning these these little nuances of each area because each area has its own little things own little kinks in the way the deer use a land use a train and like you can put rules of thumb on a lot of things and then you just got to tweak it you know based off of uh the different areas no i absolutely agree yeah it definitely takes a couple of years to really fine tune an area yeah that's probably one of probably one of my like downfalls i have like a really bad habit of i'll hunt an area and i'm like all right well nothing's happening here so i'm gonna go over here now and sit and like i don't spend enough time i've talked to ryan about this a, a bunch of times i told him I was like one of my goals for this year is i just need to be where i know i need to be and stick to it and not get bored with it and move because that kicked me in the butt last year in ohio a couple times that wasn't in the tree that i was supposed to be in and i knew better yeah. And, and man, I, I mean, I did the same thing in West Virginia last year. Like literally I picked, I found this spot in October. It was like, it was a, a topo funnel where three ridges met at one point. There's a giant scrape there. I was like, when I come back in November, I need to sit here for three days. Like if I sit there for three days, there's a really good chance that I can kill a buck or at least have an opportunity. What do you know? I, you know, didn't do exactly what I'd planned. And what did my cameras tell me that I screwed up and literally three of, there, yep. three of the four days I was hunting there, a buck that I would have shot came by through there at some point during the day. And I'm like, it's just one of, yeah, it's one of those things, but it was like a new, a newer area. And I was like, you know, I wasn't as confident as I should have been in, in that, you know, it made sense in my head, but it, I didn't have like that data or like any past experience to really tell me that it was going to happen. And, and that really bit me. So to tell me a little bit about your Ohio experience there. Oh, that was a long year. <laughs> Let's I, hear uh, I probably had, but definitely started at like this time last year, I was down and uh, shed hunted and was, checking points for betting and all that. And uh, kind of found a couple areas that I really liked and um, ended up getting some really, really big bucks over the summer on camera, which just always gets you excited. But, uh, of course, how it always is, you get the big ones on camera up until September, and then they're, like, gone in the thin air, and you never see them again. But uh, I ended up spending, like, 22 days in a tree down there until I finally killed one. And uh, it, like I said, it was just a lot of chasing my own tail. <laughs> I should have been sitting in spots that I knew better. And I can't even tell you how many times that bit me. Like so many times that I was just like, man, you gotta get your crap together. Because I even <laughs> had one, like a couple of my buddies were like, I don't even, you have so many pictures of bucks. I don't even know how you just stoop into one by accident. I was like, I was like, you're preaching to the choir, man. <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. But uh, I did have some really good encounters uh, around that, like, November 10th and 11th. was, like, the best two days I had all year. Um, on the 10th, I had two bucks probably in, like, the 30s, between mid and high 30s, chasing does, like, two of them. One was at 8 in the morning, and then one was at uh, 11. And right there, perfect example. For whatever reason, these two bucks are chasing does all over the place. Common sense will tell you, hey, I should probably stick a couple of days in this tree. There's hot does here. What I do, move to a different spot. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the next day on the 11th, I had an encounter with the biggest one that I've seen of the season. It's probably like uh, mid-40s, 10. 
And I really like the story on this book because I had this book on camera. I mean, maybe only five times throughout the year. He would just like pop in and then leave. I had him in velvet on this specific ridge that I seen him. And that's the only time that I had ever had him on camera on that ridge. And I feel like it was one of those situations where he like shows up in the summer, checks it out. And then wherever he falls at, he like tends to those, those there. And then comes back to check that summer area. Like he was cruising that same ridge that he was at in the summer. And I was just off by like 30 yards. Like he was like 50 yards. And I don't know, man, I, I shoot 50 all the time, but I'm just not a guy to be flinging an arrow 50 yards to the timber. Yeah. So, no, not that makes sense. And what what did it look like? Like where did he where did he cross that you were just off? Like was it like a certain terrain feature? What was he kind of running at that point? And actually, it wasn't even that I went in and was off just because I picked the wrong tree. I actually waited until like nine o'clock in the morning to sneak into the spot, and I actually snuck up on a herd of does feeding, and I just let them feed their way off. And I'm thinking, man, I should set up right where those does were. And just sit. So I was like 50 yards above a uh, logging trail, and it was on the north face. And there's a great big ditch on the low side of this log road. So anything that comes from the left or right crosses at the top of that ditch on the log road. So it just makes like the perfect spot. And I was 50 yards above it because I was sitting where these does were. But also, you don't think about this stuff in the moment. But I set up in that tree, this buck's cruising his trail, and I was, like, debating on shooting, but I decided not to. And I was, like, grunted at him to get him to stop, and it, like, freaked him out, and I messed the whole thing up. But if I'd have thought about it longer, I guarantee you that buck was already probably trailing those does that were beside my tree. And if I'd have never said anything, I bet you that buck would have circled right to my tree. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah, idiot. <laughs> yeah. And how many times never- it, it happens all the time and you, in, in the season, like when you look back hindsight, you know, 2020, but you, it's so hard to, to make those, you know, correct decisions until I'm sure the next time that happens, that'll be fresh in your mind, you know, as far as like, oh, maybe yeah. I should wait a little bit before I, you know, grunt at them or, or do whatever. But man, those tops, of those ditches like that, those are some of my favorite spots to set up during the rut. Cause it's like it's a natural funnel. I mean, like if you think of like ag land, it's like people that hunt like fence rows. Like it's, it's kind of like that, but even though it looks like just big unbroken timber, the way that terrain funnels them down, man, it can, it can really be good. Yep. Yeah. It's a really good spot. The only thing I don't like about that, even though I watched a mature buck do it is it's, it's fairly open in that spot. So I've already done this. I've already been in there and did all my scouting in that spot because I, it's, I guess it's like one of my main spots I'm going to be in next this coming season. It's like, it's not a doe trail. It's a real faint cruising trail. Like the, the ones that are like really hard to stay on, you got like really take your time and just catch the small sign as you go. Yep. So it, it come around that ditch, goes around another point and cuts another ditch. And I only went further out just because my access is a lot easier and foolproof. And to get to where I was, I feel like I was messing a lot of deer up on the way in. So I just, I'm going to reroute my access this next season. And I already have a tree and everything picked out. It's a lot thicker too on this hillside. So I feel like you're going to be more comfortable coming through that area. 
Yeah. And how, how do you access those types of spots? Do you like go up the ditch like in the morning coming up or do you go up the point? Like what's, what's your kind of thought on access for it? Uh, that morning I come uh, from the South side and I just climbed the whole Ridge and then creased the top and went down over the other side. Yep. Okay. But I feel like there's a lot of deer between where I was parked and where I walked on that South side. Like, I get a lot of pictures of deer in there. I can't say that I did bust a lot of deer out, but in the back of my head, I felt like they just seen me from a mile away and they were probably running everywhere. So I, but I know how I rerouted my access for next year that I'm going to probably spook very, very few deer compared to what I thought I was. So. Okay. And what, what makes you feel better about it? What does your new access look like? What's different about it? So there's a really long running Ridge. And instead of walking up the side of the ridge, increasing the top, I'm going to come from the top, but way, way, like probably a mile and a half from the side and come in. And it's like a hiker's trail. So it comes out the top and it actually goes down over the north side. And I'm going to go down over the north side and then cut out the side again and come up below the trail, the cruising trail. Okay. Gotcha. And then all that, like where all the bedding is at is further out and then above me so i'm basically below the cruising trail and he'll be cruising below the bedding on that north side catching the thermals coming down from the top ah gotcha no i like that and how many times like when you're hunting like some of those kind of like side hills like that it's always the hardest thing is like do you go above the trail or do you go below the trail and you know and, and and for me it depends like if i'm if I'm hunting, you know, mornings or evenings like that type, I usually try to be below the trail, even though it kind of sucks because you're almost at eye level, depending on the steepness of it. And mm-hmm. that's where it's like nice to be behind the tree um, or the way that you think they're coming, even though it's kind of kind of makes you pucker a little bit because it's a big drop off behind you where you're up. You might only be eight feet up in the tree, but you got a 50 foot drop off, you know, down behind yeah. you. Um, but like there, there's sometimes with some of those ditches, if it's like a spot where I think that they're going to be cruising more like mid morning or like, you know, into the afternoon, then I'll set up above the trail and try to take advantage of the uphill thermals and, uh, that, that kind of way. But it all, it, it's all very situational, but there's never, I, I struggle with it even myself of like when I go in, I usually like pick a tree for each scenario and then wait until that time to kind of decide which one that yeah. that I'm going to go in and hunt. I think when I get into those situations, when I'm on a really steep hillside, I just try to pick a tree like right on the trail. It just I want to be high enough where I'm not getting picked. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah I think that's the best case scenario for me. Anyhow, how I hunt, you just have to shoot left or right, I guess. I'm not afraid to take those those frontal shots. I know some guys are, but I, I, I have like a 31-inch draw, and I, my airs are like 550 grains, so I've never had an issue. Yeah. No, that may hey, – whatever you're comfortable with your setup, and you know yeah. – you know, you know they, the they got to be are. close. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, they got to be like like under 20, but that's yeah, how I that- like them. No, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. I love, I love the close. I mean, I think most of my setups are kind of made for that. Like there's not too many of my setups where I can shoot a whole lot further. Um, yeah, my buck and PA this last year was 12 yards, similar to, to yours. Like it was just like, yep. 
it was a chip shot and I love that. Now the year before I had 14 yard chip shot and I missed completely airballed it, which is terrible. <laughs> and then ended up getting him on the second shot. But it, I, I, but I guess the, the moral of the story is like, I just, I like that too, of like close, try to get, you know, impersonal with them, man, it just feels so good when you get that close to a mature buck. Cause it's like to get that close to him, you, you feel good about yourself and your plan uh, to be able to do that. And I think that's where like a lot of my love for the trad bow comes in. Cause I actually when I'm in the woods scouting, I kind of try to put myself in that position. I think in my head, like every scenario I have a trad bow in my hand. So it's like, I have to make this like really critique that like 10 to 15 yard range, no matter what, like I could go under help my compound you know, but in my head, I'm, I want that setup made for my, my trad bow. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great way. Actually, I was talking to my buddy, Jason red at timber ninja and he hunts with a trad bow all the time. And he was talking about that. He's like, it actually simplifies your process of like hunting, you know, when you're hunting with a trad bow, because like, you know, this is what your effective range is and you gotta be closer and it makes you really fine tune your setups and not get lazy with, with this this will yep. do because i can shoot 35 40 yards you know that sort of speak yeah I, and i see that a lot too like i'm out on the polar ground scouting and i'll see guys tree stands and they're in good areas but they're not in a good spot mm-hmm. you know I mean, they, they're missing it by like 60 yards and i don't know if they just don't know any better or if they're just sitting up because they're hunting with a crossbow or what you know what i mean but they're, they're just off yeah definitely what about um so talk a little more about that Ohio season then once, you know, you had that, that encounter there and I'll kind of explain how, how it panned out from there. Yeah. So I went down for like, I think eight days or something and hunted to rut and, uh, had those couple of really good encounters. And then I ended up going back down in gun season. I took my dad with me and, uh, uh, he gives me crap for this all the time now. Cause, uh, I had like 22 days in a tree down there. I I took probably at least 15, 16 scouting trips over the summer down. And he's like, yeah, I'll go down with you. He's like, I'll buy my license to go down with you in gun season. I'm like, all right, cool. So we go down. He's there for three hours and shoots one of the biggest bucks I had on camera all year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you have to be kidding me. Yeah, <laughs> you ever funny. meet one of those people? I could just throw a worm in a mud puddle and just reel out a great white shark. Yeah. <laughs> That's how he is. <laughs> That's yeah. Awesome. He, uh, but I was really happy for him. It was like, uh, sub one forty, uh, nine point out of six and a half inch drop time. His base oh, was almost six inches is like his main beams were just under 25 inches. So really good deer, really big deer too. Definitely a five year old, probably close to 50 pounds. Oh man, but, that's uh, awesome! So he shot him the first evening that we were there, and uh, the next morning I went out and hunted this area that uh, I'd been getting a really good buck on camera, probably like a low fifty inch ten point, and I played cat and mouse with this thing all year long. It, it just he was there, but I don't know if I just probably wasn't there enough hunting. Now, I don't know there's a lot of room around the trail cameras. Uh, but it just seemed like a ghost because he would just show up the most random times. Like you would never see it coming or expect it. And uh, I mean, I had some other decent bucks on camera and I, I was set up and I had this decent buck come in. 
and I, I watched him do for, I don't know, 20 minutes, just debating and debating and debating. And he, he come to like 30 yards. And I'm like, uh. but I think what it was more was like for the memory, you know what I mean? Like dad killed that one. We we're yeah. together. And then I, I shot that buck. It's cut it's more like for the memory. Cause we doubled up yeah. because uh, like, Five days after I shot that buck, that big one fifty is in a daylight like four days in a row down there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, that's typical. Yeah. But that that spot is um I don't know if I've heard anybody use the terminology for I always call them horseshoes. So like there's this ridge system that runs um east and west. And the north side is just straight down to a river, and then it has south jutting points. So in between two points, you have that like bowl. Yep. And I always just call it a horseshoe. It just makes you think of a horseshoe. But actually, what happened is on the way in, I had bumped a deer walking the top trail, and he the deer ran onto one of these south points, and it was the point before I got to the point I was hunting. And mid morning, uh, this deer come off of that point, and uh, snuck down to the top of the ditch where the ditch started in the bottom and then he worked his way up the other side to me so i have about half a mind that might have been the deer that i bumped and i find in these horseshoes or you could use like a saddle like i think the saddle would probably be like a really good example too is you know the bigger mature deer won't walk the tops they stay like down over the lip so they don't uh, like show themselves in the sunlight or what i'm looking for skyline yeah they will skyline yourself they want to yep. stay down over that lip and then work the edge around and that's what he did but he just come a little bit lower and just use the ditch basically where the ditch started he just crossed right above it and just worked that lip up to me that's all he's doing is crossing from one point to the other nice that's that's awesome and it's pretty cool to be able to to double up you know with with your dad down there during gun yeah. season like there, there, there's nothing better than being able to do that especially after a long season and uh just it feels good once you're finally able to put your tag on them definitely yeah and then uh there was a fourth there was a fourth year too wasn't there yep yeah i shot another buck in maryland in gun season okay so talk yeah, that was actually right the... yeah that was Sorry. actually right before ohio um okay so I had taken uh, my fiance out here um, in PA for a morning hunt until probably like nine o'clock and it was rainy and stuff. So whenever she was done, I told her, I was like, well, I'm going to head to Maryland and basically spend all day because I love sneaking with a gun in the rain. Like if it's really windy or rainy, I love that. That's what my favorite style of gun hunting is just sneaking. And, uh, I pretty much planned to be out like all day long. Like I had my pack on everything with me. I was, I planned on being out all day long. There's like a three mile Ridge. That's got like five benches on it. And I'm just, I'm going to sneak all day long. And, uh, I worked my way down over the first bench started sneaking and basically like there's their benches, but they roll because there's ditches that come in between them too. So I would like sneak to the very top and then like peek over and look, look down in the ditches and then move on. I did that twice and uh, I seen these tails and I couldn't tell what way they were going because it happened so fast. So I hear that these like four or five does come run right at me. I mean, right into my lap. 
And uh, I just kind of had to sit still because I had nothing around me. There was no big trees. I stand beside this maple tree, like this big around. So, I mean, obviously I'm not hiding anywhere. I'm in orange. And yeah. uh, they come up there and they kind of look at me and then they run off by like 10, 15 yards. I'm like, man, there's got to be a buck coming. And I wasn't going to be picky because the rifle season down there, there's people all over the place. And uh, it's like rack eight point comes run up over the hill and I pull up and shoot. And he kind of like tucks and runs and I knew I hit him. And right behind him, right after I shot, a uh, freaking big one comes running out and stands there, looks at me. I'm like, oh, you kind of kidding me. <laughs> so on top of the list of goals for this year, patience is towards the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But hey, like I, for me, I don't know when, when you go to different places and figure it out and be able to shoot really any buck in like those places like it's just like a stepping stone like you know what i mean like it it you, you grow as a hunter when you're able to to put it you know put notches i guess under your belt like for me when i go to different places my my goals and what i want to shoot is different no matter where i go like you know there's Absolutely. some places yeah i'm i'll be completely happy with any buck that i get an opportunity with and i'm like hey that's awesome i don't care what his age is what anything like it's just fun to to figure it out or maybe it's the style of hunting or the people you're with or you know then there's some places that i'm like really targeting a big deer and and i'm okay going home with nothing and and that's i don't know that's just the way i look at it is like i just have I guess my goals kind of fluctuate depending on where I'm at and the situations. And that's what makes it the most fun for, for me personally. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I didn't really have any like super high standard for Maryland because it's, I mean, there, I mean, you get your big ones that come out of Maryland, like on this end anyhow, but I didn't expect to get out and see any monsters or anything. Like I said, it is mainly just to critique my setup in early season. And if I could shoot a decent eight point or something, awesome. If not, I get my practice in for Ohio is basically what it was. Yeah. So let's, let's just recap on what were, what would you say like the four different tactics were if you had like from, from the different bucks, just like a quick, you know, couple sentence recap on each of them. Yeah. So Maryland in September was definitely the feed trees that early in the year. I mean, food is king, you know, and that, that early. And then the PA buck, I kind of classified as bedding because I, it's really like, one of the main things that we focused on was just finding out where he was betting and why he was betting there and what he was going to. And we just, that's how I killed it. I got real close to his bed. He come out of his bed down to the, the first food source. And then I would say probably just, I caught a, like just sneaking, like gun sneaking for the, uh, the second Maryland buck. I really like doing that. Uh, you know, like I said, if it's wet, raining, windy, anything like that, and then um, the Ohio buck, uh, just basic terrain, just hunting the terrain. I knew there was good bucks using those uh, south jutting points. And uh, I think that horseshoe, you know, learning how they use that was the biggest thing. Because I know there's a guy that actually has a tree stand in there, and it's right on the top, right on the top trail. And as soon as you walk by it, you're like, well, guy's probably not going to see anything. And if he does, he's going to see it way down below him, you know what I mean? Yep. And you get into those spots, start following those trails. I mean, you can follow those trails and see what they're doing. I mean, they they don't like to be on top. You know, they, like you said, they don't like the skyline. They want to be below that lip and stay hidden. Yeah. 
No, most definitely. I think that's cool that there's, you know, four completely different things essentially that you used with, with hunting these deer and being able to, to successfully do it. And that's, and I mean, that's a lot of time that you put in, like for anybody that's like listening, you know, sounds like, wow, man, that's, that's a great year four bucks. And yeah, it is, but you put in a heck of a lot of time too. And that's, then you were rewarded for, for putting in that time. And do you feel like, uh, I guess right now, you know, with it being at this point in February, are, are you planning on, you know, going to, to honing in some of those spots like postseason scouting or like spring scouting, or are you going to start looking at new areas? What, what's kind of your game plan going into the spring? Yeah. So, I mean, PA is going to be about the same i do have some new areas i've been really breaking down uh this big section of clear cuts the last couple of weeks and every every day it's nice i've been out lately um i already actually have a couple of nice bucks on camera right now that are still holding so i know kind of know what i'm looking for already next year and then obviously i'll fall back and check my my spots that are good every single year ohio my game plan is probably more rut based like i already know what days were the best i know that that area where those does were hot i got those days marked like the what when those days come in heat so i know ballpark what day day frame i need to be there and i already have in my head like i'm gonna spend three four days in there you know what i mean and um maryland i'm not real sure i might go back down this year uh, if I do, it'll, it'll be the same area and I'll be down there checking those feed trees. You know, I got all those dates marked and stuff. Um, other than that, I mean, Illinois is on my bucket list here really soon. Might not be this year, but I mean, I've got, already got my own X map loaded with pins. So yeah. I already got stuff to look at when I do make it down there. Um, even thought about doing a North Carolina, like public land early, early season hunt. I really yeah. like it down there a lot. Yeah, no, that's it, there's some different. there's some big. I don't know as far as what types of areas you're looking at, but the mountains that are down there in western North Carolina, mm-hmm. holy cow, they're they're big. There's some big, big mountains, and and uh, have there's actually quite a few listeners of this podcast that live down there, and they've sent in some Mountain Buck Monday posts that are just like jaw dropping just some absolute like hammers that they're pulling out of there and that's like it's not i wouldn't say it's the norm um they're working their butts off to find them um and and get after them but it's uh yeah i think that's a that's a cool area i've i've only ever driven through it and did some hiking there but i've never uh never actually hunted those areas yeah it's definitely different it's uh i don't know how to explain it you ever actually felt real caught in the nose fields Mm-mm. No, no uh, man. Every time, every time we go down, I stop along the road and pick like a, a Walmart bag full of that cotton, <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, I actually use it for like backup, like uh, milkweed. Like yeah. it's real thin. Yeah, I just pull it apart and use that. That's funny. <laughs> well, cool. Well, Chris, I appreciate you coming on the show here and talking through those stories. I, I love, I love when I can talk story or like talk to somebody that has stories and then kind of break them down. I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's easier for people to learn. At least I learn better from stories than just like concrete tactics that, that go out. So mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's super, super helpful. And, um, yeah, I'm excited, uh, to see what, uh, what you kind of come up with this year. 
Yeah, well, Tom Mattel, I guess. Yeah. So for for anyone that's listening, wants to check out what you have going on, where can people find uh, you and and uh, anything that you want to throw out there? Yeah, so I'm gonna do a lot on my Facebook, but it's just Chris Weiss, and then my Instagram is Unleash the Weiss, and I'm always putting stuff on my Instagram all the time. I do stories on my scouting trips, and then I make posts periodically. So everything's gonna be on my Instagram mainly. Cool. I'll put links in the the show notes for anyone, but yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on, taking time out of your day after working all night. And, uh, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here, man. It's good talking with you. You too. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.